Well, maybe we'll go ahead and uh, get started. Maybe this is a dangerous thing to do, a Bible study, right after a neuroscience test for the second years. So um, anyway, but uh, this is a, a fascinating book here. So uh, I wish we had a little more time. Put this up a little higher. All right, so why don't we pray so we begin. Dear Father, please be with us just now as we talk about the book of Job. And you talk only at the beginning and the end of this book, Father, but please help us to see you all the way through. Amen. Well, you know, um, of course, this Bible study started a little over two years ago. And my experience last year, we did get through the whole Bible in two years, but it was a little bit rushed toward the end. And so we uh, went through the whole book of Revelation in one hour, which uh, imagine that. So uh, last or two years ago, we did Job in uh, two hours, and now I've tried to pack it all into one hour. The other reason is, you know, we don't have a Bible study for a month, and so to have a part two a month later didn't quite seem to fit. So uh, I'll just tell you there are two uh, good uh, handouts uh, on the website, godscharacter.com, which you can read for more information, and you can listen to what we talked about two years ago. Here's the big picture. The beginning of the book. Did you notice my servant Job? The Lord asked. There's no one on earth as faithful and good as he is. King James uh, uses the word perfect. Okay, that's a pretty strong endorsement from God. And here's how the book ends. God saying to the three friends, you did not speak the truth about me the way my servant Job did. So I think we have to fit the whole book of Job in this context. God endorsing Job at the beginning and saying, boy, there's no one like Job, perfect and upright, faithful and good. And then God concluding the end of the book, Job was the one who spoke the truth about me. Okay, so let's use God's endorsements there. And of course, the difficult part will be God coming in the end and appearing to uh, rebuke Job. So that's what we've got to try to figure out. But you remember the story, we'll read through this quickly, that Satan here issued a challenge. When the day came for the heavenly beings to appear before the Lord. That's kind of interesting, how often did these occur? Don't you wish uh, there were some more details about this? But Satan was there among them. The Lord asked him, what have you been doing? And Satan answered, I've been walking here and there, roaming around the earth. And God says, did you notice my servant Job? The Lord asked, there's no one on earth as faithful and good as he is. He worships me and is careful not to do anything evil. How would you feel if God said this about you to Satan? Uh, Just keep it quiet, God. Let's not uh, entice Satan. But Satan replied, would Job worship you if he got nothing out of it? You've always protected him and his family and everything he owns. You bless him, bless everything he does, and you've given him enough cattle to fill the whole country. But now, suppose you take away everything he has, he will curse you to your face. All right, the Lord said to Satan, everything he has is in your power, but you must not hurt Job himself. So Satan left. And again, imagine a conversation about you you taking place in heaven. And wouldn't you want to say, God, hold on. What are you doing? Okay, but you know what happens. Trial number one. One day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's home, a messenger came to Job. He said, while the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, men of Sheba attacked. Now, how does Satan instigate this? 
Well, they attacked. They took the livestock and massacred the servants. I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, a fire from God fell from heaven. Right in the Bible, right? Must have been a fire from God. We just read the beginning of the story. God allowed Satan to do this, right? But it was interpreted here as a fire from God and completely burned your flocks and servants. I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three companies and made a raid on the camels. They took the camels and massacred the servants. I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Now, unrestrained, does Satan have uh, some capabilities here of wrecking havoc? Absolutely. I mean, this, this at least we can learn thus far in the story that uh, God is restraining Satan's ability to do these things. In this case, he didn't. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine at their oldest brother's home when suddenly a great storm swept across the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It fell on the young people. They died. I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. Job stood up tore his robe in grief and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground and worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother and naked I will return. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Through all this, Job did not sin or blame God for doing anything wrong. Okay, so God won, Satan zero uh, so far here if we're, if we're keeping uh, track. Okay. Now imagine yourself again. There's another encounter between God and Satan. What are you hoping God will do this time? Well, when the day came for the heavenly beings to appear before the Lord again, Satan was there among them, and the Lord asked him, Where have you been? Did he not have any idea? Well, Satan answered, I've been walking here and there, roaming around the earth. Did you notice my servant Job? The Lord asked. There's no one on earth as faithful and good as he is. He worships me. He's careful not to do anything evil. You persuaded me to let you attack him. Again, who did the attacking? You persuaded me to let you attack him for no reason at all. But Job is still as faithful as ever. And Satan replied, a person will give up everything in order to stay alive. But now, suppose you hurt his body. He will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, all right, he's in your power, but you are not to kill him. And do you notice who is instigating this conversation? God is the one saying to Satan, hey, did you notice Job down there? He's really a good guy. Um, again, wouldn't you want God if it were you? Why do you keep bringing this up, God? You're getting into all kinds of trouble. Well, trial number two. Satan left the Lord's presence and made sores break out all over Job's body. Now, how does Satan have the power to do that? Job went and sat by the garbage dump and took a piece of broken pottery to scrape his sores his wife said to him, you are still as faithful as ever, aren't you? Why don't you curse God and die? And Job answered, you're talking nonsense. When God sends us something good, we welcome it. How can we complain when he sends us trouble? Even in all this suffering, Job said nothing against God, at least thus far. So, um, you know, again, imagine yourself now. You're somehow kicked out of medical school. You've lost everything and you're in San Bernardino, homeless, scraping boils off your skin. And uh, I mean, this is literally what happened to Job. And we won't go through these, but Job certainly does go into a depression over this. And um, I just want to ask the question, though, uh, was God upset at Job because he 
uh, was upset about his circumstance. I mean, Job would say, I hate my life. I don't want to live forever. I don't want to live forever like this. Leave me alone because my days are so brief. Okay, so Job is, uh, I think, understandably upset. But again, who would Job be in this situation had God not said, there is a good man down there and allowed Satan to do it? Well, um, we won't read through these in the interest of time, but I think in all of these stories, it is so important that we take the larger perspective as this is not just planet Earth going on. There's a great controversy in heaven. There are onlooking angels. Remember we said they're a spectacle. This, what happens in this world is literally a spectacle, a theater for the angels. And even over things like uh, what happens with the church, uh, that the angelic rulers and powers in the heavenly world will learn of God's wisdom. They are learning through the experience of planet Earth. And even about things like the good news, these are things which even the angels would like to understand. So they are watching this, and I think God is not just teaching us here today about the book of Job and what we understand about it, but the onlooking universe. And I love this verse in Romans 3, 4. Though everyone else in the world is a liar, like those three friends, God is true. As the scripture says, he will be proved right in what he says, and he will win his case in court. Through the experience of planet Earth, God is ultimately making a case for himself. God is making the case that he's good, that he can be trusted. And the book of Job is a big part of the evidence, I believe, for this case. So I'd like to understand what happens in that setting. Now, we don't have a description of Satan coming back in another meeting, but I would say the friends are the third trial for Job. And I would say perhaps the worst <laughs> trial of all. Now, this is very interesting. Look at the, uh, the concerned nature of these friends. While they were still a long way off, they saw Job but did not recognize him. When they did, they began to weep and wail, tearing their clothes in grief and throwing dust into the air and on their heads. Then they sat there on the ground with him for seven days and nights without saying a word because they saw how much suffering he was in. So they're really concerned friends, aren't they? Sit there for a week and not say a word. They must be very sincere, genuine. What they're going to say must be incredibly believable because of their apparent concern. Is that right? Well, listen to the first one that speaks, Eliphaz. Now, what does this sound like to you? This is how the argument opens up. Once a message came quietly, so quietly I could like a nightmare. It disturbed my sleep. I trembled and shuddered. My whole body shook with fear. A light breeze touched my face and my skin crawled with fright. I could see something standing there. I stared but couldn't tell what it was. And then I heard a voice out of the silence. Now, this is kind of interesting. He was uh, somehow inspired with a message. Uh, what was the source of that inspiration? It's interesting. Job, after Eliphaz speaks, concludes this way. You terrify me with dreams. You send visions and nightmares. So what Eliphaz understood to Job was a nightmare. Okay, Who inspired these words? Well, listen to what Eliphaz, the argument of Eliphaz. Can anyone be righteous in the sight of God or be pure before his creator? God does not trust his heavenly servants. We have to read that again. God does not trust his heavenly servants. He finds fault even with his angels. Do you think he will trust a creature of clay a thing of dust that can be crushed like a moth? Can human beings 
be really pure? This is Eliphaz later on making the same argument. Can they be really pure? Can anyone be right with God? Why, God does not trust even his angels. Even they are not pure in his sight. And we drink evil as if it were water. Yes, we are corrupt. We are worthless. Is this true? Do you think, I mean, this is a heavenly parliament setting, right? Satan, the angels, God, there's a challenge going on. I mean, and so now, don't you think the angels are watching this? Do you think, well, yeah, God and Satan got into a disagreement. We're not that interested. Don't you think they're watching what's going on? And don't you think they're listening here to the argument of Eliphaz? You know what? God doesn't even trust the angels. And we imagine how this rebellion got started in the first place. Um, well, wouldn't this be somewhat uh, harmful if you believe this? So let's, let's go with those arguments. Doesn't, God doesn't trust anyone, even sinless angels. We are worthless. And I just uh, think, again, we can't take the Bible as a whole and believe that to be true. God had just said about Job, hey, there's a perfect and upright man, and I trust him, Satan. He's not going to let me down. About Abraham... I mean, listen to the words of Abraham. But you, Israel, my servant, you are the people that I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. He's worthless. I don't trust him, but he's my friend. Does that make sense? What about Moses? The Lord would speak with Moses face to face just as someone speaks with a friend. He's worthless. I don't trust him, but he's my friend. Does that make sense? And uh, David, a man after God's own heart. I mean, tender words that God refers to these people. Daniel, you are very precious to God. This was the message that came from the angel. Uh, my version says, Daniel, God loves you. Okay? Is Daniel worthless? And um, God doesn't trust him. Not at all. So, again, in a parent-child relationship, I mean, what could be more damaging to a child than to have the feeling, you know what, your parent doesn't trust you, your parent thinks you're worthless. And isn't this what children hear? when parents shout at them with angry words. My dad thinks I'm worthless. Uh, there's no better way to cut off um, any kind of contact with God among the angels than to believe the message, we're worthless, God doesn't trust us. And Jesus would say, I don't call you servants any longer because servants don't do what their master, uh, they don't know what their master is doing. Instead, I call you friends. God desires a friendship with us. Does that sound like he views us as worthless, untrustworthy uh, individuals? And Jesus came, he ate and drank, and everyone said, look at this man, he's a glutton and a wine drinker, a friend of tax collectors and other outcasts. Uh, Message Bible says he ate with a riffraff of society, and that really ticked the Pharisees off. Again, did he view these people as worthless, the riffraff of society? Apparently not. He spent time eating and drinking with them. And how about this? Jesus, end of his ministry, would say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets and stone the messengers God has sent you. Now, he's referring to the people who killed the prophets and stoned the messengers. How does God feel about people who kill his prophets and stone his messengers? How many times I wanted to put my arms around all your people. Would that not be the people who killed the prophets and stoned the messengers? His attitude is, you know what? I would just like to embrace you people. Just as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not let me. So even rebels, this is the attitude that God has. And this is such a pervasive theme through the book of Job. Uh, Bildad, 
then what about a human being? That worm, that insect, what is a human life worth in God's eyes? Again, this is the argument of the friends. We're worthless. My goodness, God is so far above, and it's true, he is so far above, but they sever the connection that God is trying to make to bring us together in, in, as friends. You have to be careful if you, uh, you know, get a bulletin in church and the quote happens to be from the book of Job, because okay? you want to know who said that. Uh, imagine this is the key text, uh, the verse read from Scripture. What about a human being? That worm, that insect, what is a human life worth in God's eyes? Right from the Bible. And Job replied to Bildad, who inspired you to speak like this? And who indeed inspired these friends to speak like this? And of course, most famous text of all, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and the world is everyone. He didn't just come for the good people. All right, so this belief, boy, we're just worthless worms that uh, really are not very valuable. Um, absolutely false, very damaging. Okay, now we can't go through all the lies. Again, I'd encourage you to check uh, the, the link on uh, Job because I have a couple articles there that point out some more of these. But Eliphaz comes back with this one. What do you think about this? Good people are glad and the innocent laugh when they see the wicked punished. Okay. Um, well, if this were true, if this is the advice um, that we are to be glad when the wicked are punished, well, we'd assume that's the attitude that God has. Is that the attitude that God has? Um, again, Jeremiah, the people I love are doing evil things. Who does God love? People who are doing evil things. He doesn't love the fact that they're doing evil things, but he loves them nonetheless. And in Hosea you know, these words as the people went off to captivity, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I abandon you? Uh, the tears in God's voice as his people leave him and go off into captivity. Uh, does he really laugh as they went off into captivity? And in Ezekiel, tell them that as surely as I, the sovereign Lord and the living God, I do not enjoy seeing sinners die. I would rather see them stop sinning and live. Israel, stop the evil you are doing. Why do you want to die? Can we hold to the position that God laughs as the wicked are punished? Uh, that is uh, purely uh, satanic. I mean, I would just have to say very strongly. But if there's one theme, if we were just to point to one major argument, it would be this. Is suffering evidence of God's curse? Each one of the friends makes this again and again and again, all the way through the book of Job. Um, and just a little bit of evidence on that. Eliphaz says, think back now. Name a single case where someone righteous met with disaster. Do any of you know of a good person that suffered disaster? Has it ever happened in the history of the world that a good person met with disaster? Well, how about this? Happy is the person whom God corrects. Do not resent it when he rebukes you. Now, that actually is true, um, but does it apply to Job? Did God say to Satan, uh, you know what, uh, there's this guy down here. Yeah, he's got some good things about him, but he's got a lot of false theology and problems. I need to correct him. And so the whole book of Job is the story of God needing to refine Job. That's not how the, you can't read the first two book chapters and come to that conclusion. This is not to correct Job's theology. So Job rebels against this very strongly. This is what seems to get him really upset. You've gone far enough. Stop being unjust. Don't condemn me. I am in the right. And again, those first two chapters of Job would suggest he was in the right. God's own endorsement that he was in the right. 
Now, do good people ever suffer loss? Well, let's just review the Bible very quickly. Abel, Isaiah, you know what happened to Isaiah? Probably sawed in half in a hollow log by Manasseh. Um, Zechariah, Jesus talked about uh, Zechariah, how he was killed. Jeremiah, boy, just read the book of Jeremiah. I mean, sunk down into a well in the mud, went off to Egypt, was probably stoned to death in Egypt. Uh, Was he not a righteous person? John the Baptist? Hmm. Jesus? James? Remember what happened to James? Peter? Um, Probably crucified upside down. John? um, In prison, off on Patmos. Uh, Paul? Have you read what Paul describes about himself? How many times he received the 39 lashes? Um, I mean, we just go right through the Reformation. Wycliffe, Tyndale... Um, Are these righteous people? Are they good people? Yeah, so when bad things happen to people, is that evidence that God is cursing them? I mean, it almost would seem like, when you take the Bible, that uh, the best people, the best friends that God has, seem to encounter some of the greatest resistance and difficulty. Okay? And Jesus would say, he, God, makes his sun to shine on bad and good people alike and gives rain to those who do good and to those who do evil. Right? And Job asks, I think here rather sarcastically, was a wicked person's light ever put out? Did one of them ever meet with disaster? Did God ever punish the wicked in anger and blow them away like straw in the wind or like dust carried away in a storm? All right, so again, the, the, his anger at this suggestion that he needed to be punished by God is, is quite strong. And here's the mindset all the way up to the time of Jesus. If you're rich, if you're healthy, you're blessed by God. If you're poor, if you're sick, you're cursed by God. That was it. I mean, the, right up until the time of Jesus and the interaction between the disciples and the Pharisees, it's very clear This is why the story of the rich man and Lazarus was so shocking. Here, the rich man, well, he's blessed. He's good, obviously. He's rich. Lazarus is the one that ends up in heaven. Doesn't make any sense. Totally countercultural. And that's why I like the disciples. They said, teacher, they're talking about the blind man. Whose sin caused him to be born blind? Here are the two options as the disciples understood why this man was blind. Was it his own or his parents' sin? Obviously, he's blind. So God has punished him uh, either by, you know, because he sinned or his parents sinned. Those were the two options. And I love Jesus' response. He answered, his blindness has nothing to do with his sins or his parents' sins. Has nothing to do with it. Now, of course, Jesus made a great thing uh, come out of that by restoring his sight. And so this was, again, this verse did not fit with their understanding. Jesus said, how hard it is for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. Whoa. Rich people, those are the ones that are assumed they've got it made. They're rich. They're blessed. Those are the people that are going to make it to heaven. It's much harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. The people who heard him asked, shocked and amazed, well, if rich people can't go to heaven, then who can possibly be saved? Remember Jesus telling them, you know, the poor, the outcasts of society, those are the ones forcing themselves into the kingdom. I mean, the people who received Jesus were fishermen, tax collectors, prostitutes, and uh, exactly the opposite of what was expected. 
And so when Jesus would open his ministry by saying things like this, happy are you poor, the kingdom of God is yours, it was pretty easy for the Pharisees to dis dismiss him as a false teacher. Happy are you poor? Those are people cursed by God. So they had not read and understood the book of Job, a good, righteous, upright man who is suffering loss, but not because of his own fault. So again, the, the assertion here that Job, God is punishing you. And they really hammer this home. Put your heart right, Job. Reach out to God. Put away evil and wrong from your home. Then face the world again, firm and courageous. Then all your troubles will fade from your memory like floods that are past and remembered no more. Put away all that evil, Job, even though God just said he's perfect and upright man. How about this? But now you are being punished as you deserve, Job. And this is even worse. God is punishing you less than you deserve. And any sensible person will surely agree and the wise who hear me will say that Job is speaking from ignorance and that nothing he says makes sense. Think through everything that Job says. You will see that he talks like an evil man. To his sins, he adds rebellion. In front of us all, he mocks God. I mean, what was the greatest trial? I think the greatest trial was, man, not only have you lost everything and physically are you suffering, but then it is pounded in that this friendship you've had with God, it was all just a myth. It wasn't real. God is upset with you, Job. He's punishing you. So Job, he has some hard words for God. And this is why it is often assumed, hey, God was really upset at Job after this whole thing was over. So this is in Job 19. These are some of the hardest. Job said, you think you are better than I am and regard my troubles as proof of my guilt? Can't you see it is God who has done this? Whew. Now there we expect a lightning bolt or something, right? But now think about it though. I mean, God has provided protection for each and every one of us, including Job. And in this case, God removed his protection. He allowed Satan to do all these things to him. So it's true, it wasn't directly at God's hand, but in a sense, didn't, wasn't God responsible for the things that happened to Job? He has set a trap to catch me. I protest his violence, but no one is listening. No one hears my cry for justice. He's taken away all my wealth and destroyed my reputation. God has made my own family forsake me. I am a stranger to those who knew me. My relatives and friends are gone. Those who were guests in my house have forgotten me. My servant women treat me like a stranger and a foreigner. When I call a servant, he doesn't answer, even when I beg him to help me. My wife can't stand the smell of my breath, and my own brothers won't come near me. Children despise me and laugh when they see me. My closest friends look at me with disgust. Those I love most have turned against me. My skin hangs loose on my bones. I have barely escaped with my life. You are my friends. Take pity on me. How I wish that someone would remember my words and record them in a book. Hmm, isn't this neat that they were recorded? Apparently Job didn't know that at the time. Or with a chisel, carve my words in stone and write them so that they would last forever. Well, guess what? They will last forever. But right here in Job 19, where Job would seem to say, it's your fault, God, it's your fault, he continues on. Same chapter. But I know that there is someone in heaven who will come at last to my defense. Even after my skin is eaten by disease, while still in this body, I will see God. I will see him with my own eyes and he will not be a stranger. 
even in his anguish, he could still say wonderful things like this. And a few chapters later, I still rebel and complain against God. I cannot keep from groaning, but how I wish I knew where to find him and knew how to go where he is. I would state my case before him and present all the arguments in my favor. I want to know what he would say and how he would answer me. Would God use all his strength against me? No, he would listen as I spoke. I am honest. I could reason with God. He would declare me innocent once and for all. I mean, what do you think about Job's picture of God? Even after all of this, if I could just talk with him, I know that we'd get all this uh, worked out. I mean, I think this is incredible. If Job really believed that God was an enemy and against him, I mean, wouldn't he want to be as far away as possible? And here, if I could just talk with him. Well, um, I think the Bible provides such evidence that we can talk to God as a friend. Uh, I know I've read these, but Moses, my goodness, I mean, what a better friend did God have? And we read this before uh, in Egypt where God, where Moses said to God, why do you mistreat your people? Why did you send me here? Ever since I went to the king to speak for you, he's treated them cruelly and you've done nothing to help them. And Moses is declared to be a friend of God. And we read this uh, recently when we went through Numbers, but it's kind of shocking. Moses says to God, why have you treated me so badly? Why are you so displeased with me? Why have you given me the responsibility for all these people? I didn't create them or bring them to birth. Why should you ask me to act like a nurse and carry them in my arms like babies all the way to the land you promised to their ancestors? I can't be responsible for all these people by myself. It's too much for me. If you're going to treat me like this, have pity on me and kill me so that I won't have to endure your cruelty any longer. And a short time later, we have these wonderful encounters between Moses and God. Moses was his friend. So um, again, endorsement of a person who under anguish would talk with God in this way. And Abraham, remember God comes to tell him about Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham says, surely you won't kill the innocent with the guilty. That's impossible. You can't do that. If you did, the innocent would be punished along with the guilty. That's impossible. God, you have to act justly. And we just read the verse where Abraham is called a friend of God. So as I read Job complaining and grumbling amidst many wonderful words that he had to say, it seems like God's friends under moments of incredible stress um, talk to God very honestly. And that's what I see Job doing. And we'll come to uh, the psalm. Do you know about 30% of the psalms are complaints? And uh, we'll read a verse in the Psalms where David says, Lord, what hurts the most is you're no longer powerful. Well, it's not true, but David felt like it at the time. Well, so what was the most painful of all for Job? It was that his friend was no longer there. If he could just talk with God, where's my friend? Listen to these words. I've searched in the East, but God is not there. I've not found him when I searched in the West. God has been at work in the north and the south, but still I've not seen him. Yet God knows every step I take. If he tests me, he will find me pure. And again in chapter 29, if only my life was what could once again be as it was when God watched over me. God was always with me then and gave me light as I walked through the darkness. Those were the days when I was prosperous and the friendship of God protected my home. Okay, Job and God were friends. And Job is just saying, hey, where is this good God I've always known who's been my friend? I call to you, O God, but you never answer. And when I pray, you pay no attention. And probably the most famous verse of all from Job, though he slay me, yet will I still trust him. 
I think the words of Job all the way through, God is just uh, gushing over his friend Job down here who withstands all of these attacks and is yet still saying these wonderful words about God. Though he slay me, I'm still going to trust him. Well, Job concludes with these words in Job 31. Will no one listen to what I'm saying? I swear that every word is true. Let Almighty God answer me. If the charges my opponent brings against me were written down so that I could see them, I would wear them proudly on my shoulder and place them on my head like a crown. I would tell God everything I've done and hold my head high in his presence. That's how he felt after the whole encounter. Now, what follows is uh, very, very interesting. Elihu, here he's fed up. These three friends have been talking with Job and now Elihu steps in. And um, as I've looked through commentaries and so on, uh, many of them, in fact, it would seem like most of them feel that Elihu was mouthpiece for God, spoke for God. But let me just bring out a few things here that are rather troubling to me about Elihu. The three men refused to reply further to Job because he kept insisting on his innocence. Then Elihu became angry because Job refused to admit he had sinned and to acknowledge that God had just cause for punishing him. Hmm. But he was also angry with Job's three friends because they had been unable to answer Job's arguments and yet had condemned him. Here's his argument. My knowledge is wide. I will use what I know to show that God, my creator, is just. Nothing I say to you is false. You see before you a truly wise man. Certainly my words are not lies. The one who knows everything is speaking with you, is how the God's word version puts it. Um, he just doesn't strike me as having a lot of humility as, as I read the words of Elihu here. But here's some of the theology. God corrects us by sending sickness and filling our bodies with pain. To read that one again, God corrects, corrects us by sending sickness and filling our bodies with pain. And that's obviously what's gone on with you, Job. Those who are sick lose their appetites and even the finest foods look revolting. Their bodies waste away to nothing. You can see all their bones. They're about to go to the world of the dead, like you, Job. So here's what he says. Have you ever seen anyone like this man, Job? He never shows respect for God. Is that true? He likes the company of evil people and goes around with sinners? Is that true? Okay, this is Elihu's argument. Job, have you confessed your sins to God and promised not to sin again? Have you asked God to show you your faults? And have you agreed to stop doing evil? Since you object to what God does, can you expect him to do what you want? The decision is yours, not mine. Tell us now what you think. Any sensible person will surely agree, and the wise who hear me will say that Job is speaking from ignorance and that nothing he says makes sense. Think through everything that Job says. You will see that he talks like an evil man. To his sins, he adds rebellion. In front of us all, he mocks God. I think we have to reject the testimony of Elihu because we have God at the beginning and at the end of the book saying, Job is right. And it was uh, Elihu that said, but now you are being punished as you deserve. All right. But here's what I find really fascinating. Elihu would go on here in his argument and say, remember how great is God's power. In fact, his argument goes over several chapters and it's all about God's power. God is powerful. God is powerful. Everyone has seen what he's done, but we can only watch from a distance. We cannot fully know his greatness or count the number of his years. 
And in chapter 36 and 37, again, more about God's power. And interestingly, he describes God as like a storm. How did God come? Like a storm. But here's, here are his final words of Elihu. Now listen to this. I won't ask to speak with God. Why should I give him a chance to destroy me? God's power is so great that we cannot come near him. The whole Bible is God trying to bring us close. Intimacy, fellowship, friendship. I don't want to call you servants anymore, but friends. And here the message of Elihu is, boy, I certainly wouldn't want to talk with God. I don't want to give him a chance to destroy me. Is that the picture of God that Job had? And so he says, no wonder then that everyone is awed by him and that he ignores those who claim to be wise. So Elihu is, boy, God is just powerful. Let's not get close. Okay, but now how would you anticipate God would come? I mean, wouldn't you expect the picture of God we have is like Jesus. He's going to come with gentleness. He's going to wrap his arms around Job and kind words. But of course, God comes with great power. In a storm, just as Elihu described. Then out of the storm, the Lord spoke to Job. Who are you to question my wisdom with your ignorant, empty words? Now stand up straight and answer the questions I ask you. Were you there when I made the world? If you know so much, tell me about it. Who decided how large it would be? Who stretched the measuring line over it? Do you know all the answers? What holds up the pillars that support the earth? Who laid the cornerstone of the world? And this is rather shocking, isn't it? And now God uses sarcasm. Do you know where light comes from or what the source of darkness is? Can you show them how far to go or send them back again? I'm sure you can because you're so old and were there when the world was made. Um, you know, it's just... Uh, Job never disputed the fact that God was powerful. He never denied that. He talks about God's power. But here God just comes with power and, hey, Job, you know, I mean, it's, how do we understand this? Well, many, many verses of God detailing his great power. And then he says to Job, Job, you challenged Almighty God. Will you give up now or will you answer? Why is God doing this? I mean, God brought this trial onto Job, and now God says, you challenged me, Job. And then Job says, I spoke foolishly, Lord. What can I answer? I'll not try to say anything else. I've already said more than I should. Job is just, uh, he's silenced. Now, imagine you're an angel in heaven. You've watched this. You've heard God say, there's a perfect and upright man. And now you watch all this happen, and was God wrong? I guess uh, God didn't know how Job would respond to this whole uh, circumstance. Uh, and the angels maybe are watching and thinking, well, I guess the friends are right. Maybe Satan was right. Well, one thing I would say here is, even though Job says, I spoke foolishly, I just want to quickly point out people that have encountered God in all his might and glory. Notice how others have responded. Isaiah he saw the glory of God and said, there's no hope for me. I'm doomed because every word that passes my lips is sinful. I live among a people whose every word is sinful. And yet with my own eyes, I have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And he felt bad about himself. Daniel saw the glory of God. Therefore, I was left alone and saw this great vision and there remained no strength in me for my beauty was turned within me to corruption and I kept no strength. Again, righteous people encountering God, and this is the, how they feel. Paul, 
Remember, he was caught up into the seventh heaven and all of that, and then he could say, I am less than the least of all God's people. And John, I mean, he was the beloved disciple, the one closest to Jesus. And here he has another encounter with God in his glory. And when I saw him, I fell down at his feet like a dead man. And I like in all these cases, God comes and says, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. But again, I think the way Job Job felt does not necessarily mean he's guilty in this whole encounter. This is how Job felt at that time. And God had just uh, come with those strong words. But it goes on. Then out of the storm, the Lord spoke to Job once again. Now stand up straight and answer my questions. Are you trying to prove that I'm unjust to put me in the wrong and yourself in the right? Are you as strong as I am? Did Job ever claim that he was stronger than God? Can your voice thunder as loud as mine? Did Job ever make that accusation? If so, stand up in your honor and pride. Clothe yourself with majesty and glory. I mean, would Job have any opportunity to do any of these things? And so right up at this point now, God, I think, takes an interesting turn. And he talks about a beast called Leviathan. Now, this is somewhat uh, speculative here, but uh, there are some interesting things about this beast. Can you catch Leviathan with a fish hook or tie his tongue down with a rope? Can you put a rope through his snout or put a hook through his jaws? This, this goes on for 34 verses about this monster. Uh, why do we care so much about this monster? I mean, let, let's cut to the chase here. We get a long description here. What's the point? Well, touch him once and you'll never try it again. You'll never forget the fight. Anyone who sees Leviathan loses courage and falls to the ground. When he's aroused, he's fierce. No one would dare to stand before him. Who can attack him and still be safe? No one in all the world can do it. Who is this beast? Well, he goes on to describe his strong legs and everything about this monster. But in Job 41.15, his pride is invincible. Nothing can make a dent in that pride. Nothing can get through that proud skin, impervious to weapons and weather. Now, many of your versions will say his back is invincible, but the Hebrew word, I understand, is really pride. Um, Who's the biggest example in universal history of pride? I mean, Satan is always referred to as uh, having great pride. And then in the end here, even angels run for cover when he surfaces, cowering before his tail thrashing turbulence. And that word can mean God's little g or even the strongest run for cover. Who's God talking about? His stony heart is without fear, as unyielding and hard as a millstone. When he rises up, even the strongest are frightened. They are helpless with fear. There is no sword that can wound him, no spear or arrow or lance that can harm him. For him, iron is as flimsy as straw and bronze as soft as rotten wood. There is no arrow that can make him run. Rocks thrown at him are like bits of straw. To him, a club is a piece of straw, and he laughs when men throw their spears. And it ends with these words, NIV version. Nothing on earth is his equal, a creature without fear. He looks down on all that are haughty. He is king over all that are proud. Who's the king over all that are proud? Well, I like the possible interpretation here that God is saying to Job, you know what? You're just missing one piece of the puzzle here. There is a great enemy. There is a great controversy. And uh, this Leviathan is talked about here in Isaiah 27.1. On that day, the Lord will use his fierce and powerful sword to punish Leviathan. And this is interesting. Isaiah 26 and 27 are in time. The previous verse is resurrection of the wicked. And now we get this description of punishing Leviathan, that slippery snake. 
That's interesting. Leviathan, that twisting snake, he will kill that monster which lives in the sea. And the sea is always where the people are. And in Psalms, this Leviathan has many heads, so a many-headed beast is not only in Revelation. It's in the Old Testament as well. So uh, that interpretation appeals to me, but we still have to deal with this. Now, Job, here's his response. And your versions will vary quite a bit on this. But now God just said, you challenged me, Job. And Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And God, I never said you weren't powerful. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? It's interesting. Who's he referring to? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And I like here a literal interpretation uh, of Job's words to God. Listen to this, New American Standard Bible. Job, after all this, says to God, Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I mean, after all of this, would you say to God, Listen, I'm going to ask you, and you instruct me. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. The God's Word version, Job says, Listen now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you will teach me. I mean, Job here is appearing to still... God, I'm gonna, I want to ask you. He's not just whimpering in submission, but then he finally gives in. Here's the new Revised Standard Version. Job says, Here and I will speak. I will question you. We just don't want to question God. And you declare to me, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job is, I think he's just checked out at this point. But now God steps in. I mean, I think, uh, again, if you're angels in heaven, I think you're thinking, boy, Job was, was uh, you know, he's, uh, he lost it. But now God, it's an incredible twist. After the Lord had finished spe- speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you did not speak the truth about me the way my servant Job did. And they're ordered to go sacrifice. You did not speak the truth about me as he did. And I think there would just be a collective gasp in heaven at this point that God turns the whole situation around and says, Job was right. And um, I think that the point here is the friends are making God continually out to be distant, far, far away. Job is continually making God out to be very close. And if I could just uh, parallel uh, one thing here, God, the iconoclast, always trying to break down the false image and to bring us to see the true image. And the examples we've used thus far is God coming to Abraham, sacrifice your son. And, you know, shocking again. But the point is God is destroying the false image. And we come away from that story saying God does not need to be appeased by sacrifice. He himself will provide the sacrifice. God coming to Moses and saying, don't stop me, Moses. I'm going to wipe out those two million people. And Moses saying to God, if you're going to do that, strike my name from the books. And God saying, all right, that's it. Did you all see that? And I think here again with Job, it is the same thing. God here eventually endorses Job. We can talk to God honestly as a friend, and we can be close as a friend, just like Job was with God. I think that's the point of the story. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, please help us to have wisdom as we look at these stories to 
uh, see them perhaps in a new way, always coming closer to you as our, you, Jesus, as our true picture of who God is. And please help us to, like Job, experience friendship and trust, and that even if everything fell apart, we could still say that we trust you. Amen.